Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson five. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Your word is life unto them that find it. That means there has to be a pursuit because it's life to them that find it. In other words, it's not necessarily going to track us down, but we can surely track it down because you said that you're a very present help in times of trouble. So Lord, once again today, we're trusting that your spirit who knows everything and who by this gracious work of your son lives in each of us, we're trusting and we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to please rise up within us. We're asking you to teach us. You're the great teacher of the church. You're the one that can take words on paper and cause them to become something that's alive to us, that goes way beyond this brain of ours and something that gets into our spirit and becomes one with us. And that's all we want, Father. We desperately want our spirits to be impacted with your truth so that we become one with it, so that it's not a teaching that we embrace, but it's, it's a life that we begin to experience. So, Lord, would you help us again today as we look into Moses' life and, and follow his journey with Israel and the things that he learned along the way as we consider all the many, 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 many lessons, Lord. And we're only touching but a few of them. But all of the things that we see that Moses was learning along the way. He was a type of your son, Jesus. And he's also a type of a, what a real intercessor is, Father. So, again, I just ask that you would grant us wisdom and that you'd help us to see what each of us needs to see. And Lord, we give you that right to speak to each of us as individuals because what one person here needs to know may not be the same thing the other one needs to know. But Lord, we're here collectively not to hear from any guy or any man. Uh, we desperately, I desperately want to hear from the Holy Spirit. I try to approach this fresh every time, Father. You know my heart. I want fresh understanding. I want fresh revelation. I don't want old manna like we talked about in the last few weeks. I want that fresh oil from heaven to be poured upon us every single day. I want to somehow put myself in the position where you're able to do that, where I can stand still long enough that you can catch me and you can pour that oil on me. Because I need that oil from heaven, Father. I need that anointing. I need revelation. I need understanding. I just need everything you have, Father. I'm, I'm a needy person. And I don't, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I need everything about you, Father. Because outside of you, I have absolutely nothing to offer. I have nothing whatsoever. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in me that's good in any way, shape, or form. So today, Father, we approach your word once again with much reverence. And we're simply asking for you to help us to look and to see what you want us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. In any area of your life as a believer, now be honest with me. How many people in here have found themselves going... <laughs> Listen, is God in this or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, now think about who's saying this. Think about, again, Israel. And remember, these are the people that have seen, they've crossed the Red Sea through the miraculous move of God's Spirit. They've had a cloud follow them by day and a fire by night. They've seen all the ten plagues come upon Egypt. These are not people that did not have supernatural experiences, are they? But yet in the midst of all of that, it's, it's amazing human nature. Human nature is human nature. 
It's not God's nature. And in the midst of all of that, regardless of all the things, the moment, you see, I don't know, you, I wish that I wish that I wish that we in ministry, we that are involved, I wish I could take away the rough spots in my own journey, much less the rough spots in your journey. But you know, there's rough spots in this journey. And some people still labor under this misconception that once you come to Christ, that every rough spot is taken away. God's never said that was going to be the case. I mean, the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 91, that everybody knows so well, the last three or four verses, verses remember, is where God says, I will be with you in trouble. God never says there will be no trouble, but his promise is, I will be with you in trouble. And I will deliver you. Hallelujah. I said, I will deliver you. That's what he said. But in the, in the midst of it, though, no matter what, along this journey, there's so many tough places. There's pit hole, potholes. There's, there's mountains to climb. There's all this stuff. And, and I don't know. I'm just saying, you see, you and I have to get some old-fashioned spiritual backbone about us and understand that this is the journey that we're in. We're to be of good cheer. Now, so in other words, nothing catches the Lord off guard. Nothing surprised him. But back to the, the scripture here. The people began to murmur against Moses and they had said this. Uh, he called the place Messiah, called the place Meribah because of the contention, the fact they wanted to prove the Lord. But the people had said this, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I, I didn't do this in this teaching because this is not what I'm teaching on. But you know, it's amazing. Again, in a lexicon, but this verse connects, absolutely connects with the next verse. And it's funny how the words are where a sentence, God doesn't stop mid-sentence, but really it can be argued very strongly that this is how the scripture reads, verse 7 and 8. It says, they tempted and tried the patience of the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek. Now what I want to say is that there's, there's something that can be argued that when we begin to come forth with that area of murmuring, or we question whether or not God's with us, we open the door, we release something that allows Amalek to come. But now let me just go ahead. And that's all I want to say about that because there's a whole study behind all that. But I just want to read now. It says, Then came Amalek, descendants of Esau, and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the hilltop. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and grew weary. So the other men took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua mowed down and disabled Amalek and his people with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, because theirs is a hand against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war from Amalek from generation to generation. Now, 
This is one of the most classic passages in all the Bible as far as the power of prayer and all this. But I, like I said, there's a couple of things I just want to speak to real quickly because I have to move to these other ones. Now, the word Amalek on your outlines, you'll see the word Amalek from Cruden's Concordance, the actual name means this, a people that licks up or that takes away, a people that strikes, a people that uses ill. The, Amalek, Am, the Amalekites, as we're going to read in a little bit, are known as the very first heathen people to come against the people of God. So they're a prototype. It's going to use that phrase in Colin Delitz. Because he says he's going to utterly wipe out their name from under the sun. But then he says something that almost sounds contradictory. He says, you're going to have my people are going to have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Like forever. Now there's a scripture reference that I'm not going to go to here. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15 on the Amplified Bible in verse 14, it'll say at the bottom of it, 1 Samuel 15, 2 through 8. I would suggest you go and read that so that you can see another reference about this. But I'm going to read from the outline in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19. Moses is speaking here as well, and he says this. He said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you had come forth from Egypt, how he did not fear God. But this is how Amalek works. But when you were faint and weary, he attacked you along the way and cut off all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. You must not forget it. It's a very powerful phrase. You must not forget it. In the midst of this, what I'm going to spit out to you is very simple, is that Amalek is a type of Satan. Amalek is a type of Satan's emissaries as well, all the Amalekites. This is the one people that God says that my people are going to have war with from generation to generation forever. And he said, the thing is, he said, I'm going to blot his name out forever. But we learn here again a little truth about how Amalek or how the enemy fights. Now, the reason I want you just to hear this, like I said, I don't want to take a lot of time on it. But it says, this is how Amalek fight. He came from behind. He struck Israel while they were faint and weary. And he attacked the stragglers that were in the rear. All I, all I want you to say is, all I rather want you to understand is this is why you and I, remember earlier we've already taught on the principle of Sabbath. It was crucial to God that his people understood the principle of Sabbath. If you want to guarantee attack, just allow yourself to get spiritually weary and faint. That's all I'm going to say. Just get weary out. That's what Daniel 7.25, it speaks about the spirit of Antichrist. It says this, it says in the last time, it says the spirit of Antichrist, when he comes, he shall seek to wear out the saints of the Most High, and, uh, you know, and to cause them to faint along the way. And again, the little Hebrewisms there mean to wear out by mental fatigue. Bala, B-A-L-A is a Hebrew word. It means to wear out by mental fatigue. The Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which First John says is already in the world, is at work in the world right now. And his job, listen to that, is to wear out the saints of the Most High. And it's amazing that that scripture actually says through mental fatigue, not the scripture, but the concordance of the, the Hebrew. It says through mental fatigue to get you so in your mind trying to figure out, even as I said, there is the Lord among us or not, whatever, to get you to question God's faithfulness, to get you to question God's accountability to, to us, to get you to question the covenant, to just question anything about God whatsoever. When you do that, you find yourself getting to the place where you will weary yourself out because you're in your mind in the first place. This is why there's such a battle. 
for the mind. This is why you have to take thoughts captive, all the stuff that we've taught for years. You have to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. But Amalek always attacks from behind. And they'll always attack while people are weary and faint. And his job is to knock off the stragglers. There's a lot of ways we could go here. It's not good to be a straggler around the camp of God. Hanging on the fringes, hanging on the outside, just barely in there. You need to be right dead off in the middle of the camp. Even if you watch the Discovery Channel, you know about that. When you watch lions after antelope, you know what I mean? What do they go after? They don't go after the strong bulls right in the center of the, of the thing, whatever. It's those young ones. It's the brand new ones. It's the young calves. And it always it's heart, it makes your heart sick, doesn't it, if you watch some of those things on TV. These lions and grow and they grab these young, young calves and you go, that's just not fair. <laughs> but the fact is that's who they go after because hell, remember, isn't really bothered about your, your well, your compassion. In those areas, he will go after the weak, he will go after the young, he will go after the stragglers. So at some point, this is why whether we're in ministry in a pulpit position or not, we need to understand God has called us as intercessors to look out and to be our brother's keeper in many situations. And we need to do our best to try to provoke people to get in the middle of the pack. In other words, don't just linger about church. Don't just say, I can go to church when I want to, I don't have to. You need the fellowship of the believers. Because I guarantee you, it's like a runaway child. You'll get out there and you'll find yourself in the middle of stuff that you wish you'd never got involved in. You get sucked in in a moment. Here's one of the most well-known passages in Scripture as concerns the area of prayer. The picture of Moses, Aaron and her on the mount. The battle beneath depends on the determination above. Moses tells Joshua, he will take the rod of God and lead from above the battle. Herein lies the absolute tie natural being linked to the spiritual, right? Now, do you, I know it's, like I said, this is an obvious teaching, but we still have to go through it. It's an absolute tie that the natural is connected to the spiritual. Like I said, this is one of the most graphic passages in all scripture. From Adam Clark's commentary, I've got this down here. It's on your notes. It's not, a, it's not a, you know, I have to put a bunch of it in. It's not that all of it's essential, but he said, the Jerusalem Targum says, quote, when Moses held up his hands in prayer, the house of Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands from prayer, in other words, in the actual Targum, it actually says in prayer. And when he let down his hands from prayer, the house of Amalek prevailed. We may therefore conclude that by holding up the hands in this case, these two things were intended. Number one, that hereby a reference was made to God as the source whence all help and protection must come, and that on him alone they must depend. Number two, that prayer and supplication to God are essentially necessary to their prevalence over all their enemies. It is indisputably true that while the hands are stretched out, that is, while the soul exerts itself in prayer and supplication to God, we are sure to conquer our spiritual adversaries. But if our hands become heavy, if we restrain prayer before God, Amalek will prevail. Every spiritual foe Every internal corruption will gain ground. Several of the fathers consider Moses with his stretched out hands as a figure of Christ on the cross, suffering for mankind and getting a complete victory over sin and Satan. Again, lest that sound too simplistic, remember you've heard me say it a thousand times in every teaching that we do that we as the body of Christ are massively playing a game of catch up and that all of God's people were to be a people of prayer. Today, you know, there's a massive move of prayer, but still the percentage of people that really even consider prayer a daily business is so small 
compared to what it needs to be because, again, we have a billion other things that are far more important. That's why we have a billion problems in the world because the church was always meant, remember, God was never behind democracy or republicanism. God was into theocracy. God wanted to be in control. But you have to let God be in control, and the way you let God's control or let His help come into anything is by your show of dependence upon Him, which happens when you pray. Father, you're declaring when you pray. Remember, Clark said the same thing. Prayer is the language of dependence. He who prays not seeks to live independently from God. This is the first curse and continues to be the curse of mankind, that man will, if possible, live independently from God. And he went on to say, therefore, he either prays not at all, or he says he prays using the words of prayer without the spirit of prayer, which is very powerful. Again, going back to a Church of England vicar that spoke to me when I first came to this nation, when he, an older fellow up north, and I was speaking at this conference, and he said to me, he said, my, he called me a young man. I felt really good about him. I liked him immediately. <laughs> But he said, young man, he said, our common book of prayer, he said, is full of magnificent prayers. He said, but our problem today is that we no longer pray them, we only say them. And if you can catch that, you see, your spirit has to be connected to what you do. Anything can become religious. That's one of the greatest tools of hell, is to make something religious. That's why anything, intercession can become religious. I don't care if you're in a charismatic church, that can become religious. Worship, anything can become religious. That's why you as an individual have to fight the fight of faith every day of your life. I'm going to worship God because I choose to, not because I'm told to. I'm going to offer up my tithes and offerings, not because it's offering and tithe time and because it's something you do in church, but because I want to prove to God that I acknowledge Him as my source. He's my source, not my job. You know what I mean? Whatever you do, you have to make an individual decision about what you do. Otherwise, it will be religiousized. You know what I mean? The moment it gets religiousized, it loses its power because you do it from a sense of duty. Anyhow, even the posture speaks. The hands and face must be upward for the battle below to be won. We must keep our eyes on the solution more than the problem or else we will become problem-oriented rather than solution-oriented. And on the next page, it says, while some commentators say the rod in Moses' hand possibly wasn't visible to the army below, it's still possible that it was. If so, we see that visible sight of the intercessor. If so, we see that visible sight of the intercessor about his work can give strength and inspiration to those who are in battle. That prayer is going upward to God. Many will draw courage from the knowledge that you are at prayer in their behalf. Now, that's the truth. I mean, but like we said, we can't prove here that, that Joshua and the people down on the field of Rephidim we're able to see Moses, Aaron, and her up there. But I always picture, you know, can you imagine if you're down there fighting with the sword and pretty soon it begins to dawn on you because this battle lasted all day and you kind of glance over your head and you see Moses with this rod in his hand. But, you know, and the, every time it goes down, you know what I mean? You see all of a sudden Amalek starts to prevail and then you're going, this is not good. And you see his hands go up and suddenly you begin to win and this tide, I mean, you have to see how, you know, God put this in here for a reason. It's the major, 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 clear, graphic, precise picture of what the connection is between heaven and earth. Here's a man, as long as this rod is in his hands and lifted up to God, Israel's prevailing. The moment it comes down, because he's natural man, he gets tired. That's why they needed help. That's why I needed Aaron heard the whole thing. This is why we need help. All of us need help. This is why no one man can help or can win the battle. 
It's all of us joined together because I guarantee you, you will get weary. That's why you need somebody next to you that's strong to lift your arms when you're weary. I need people next to me when I'm weary to lift my arms. I don't need them to look at me and say, you're weary. You know, yeah, I know I am. Just lift my arms, would you? Because <laughs> right now I'm the guy that's supposed to keep this thing held up. You know, well, I just want you to know that you're weary. Well, thank you. You know, I really needed that revelation. No, I need somebody to hold my arms up. You need somebody to hold your arms up. But the point is, we need our arms up. We need to be in that posture of prayer. Uh, I remember my very first quote-unquote assignment in ministry was in Jamaica. When I, the very first time before I came here, when I, you know, I came to England originally part of an organization called WOBI, W-O-B-I, World Outreach Bible Institute. And I was asked as a teacher, you know, my pastor put me forward from California and to, I was to go and help start Bible schools in different nations. I was, you know, in Abuja, Nigeria. Then I was, to be, then I was in Hyderabad in India, then Bombay, Belize in Central America. But the very first place I went was Jamaica. Tough duty. I loved it. <laughs> I was in uh, St. Saint, Saint Anne Claremont Parish, the Garden Parish. I mean, the most beautiful part of Jamaica there is. I mean, outside my back garden were 16 types of fruit. I mean, it just, oh, man. But anyhow, early in the morning, just, and we, it was way up kind of in the bush. It wasn't around any city. Like I said, it wasn't around Kingston or, or Mobay or anything like that. But anyhow, there was these little, they'd have these little concrete escarpments, kind of just rough porn concrete on the sides of the hills in Jamaica, if you've been there, because rainwater would come and they'd act as a catchment. They'd catch water and the water would go into wells and that they'd draw water from one have And this may not sound like anything to you, but, but uh, just because of what I'm reading, let me just read this one part. If so, the visible side of an intercessor about his work can give strength and inspiration to those in the battle. Now, I was over there technically. I'm on the mission field. I'm trying to work with people. And I got a real lesson. Nobody, no man taught me this, but God stopped me because this was my very, very first time to leave America and go, into ministry, go outside and to minister outside of the States, you know, and I was trying to do my best. And so people had sent me off, you know, in the church there that called and blessed me and done some stuff at a person's house and I was very chuffed. I was blown out of the water because people put some money in my life. You know, it's a very humbling thing when people put money in your life and they believe in you. you if, if you've ever worked for your money in your life and you make a decision right, then God, please help me be worth the money because I knew how hard some of these people work for their money. Anyhow, I'm sitting on this, and in the morning we get up so early, you know, what have you, and it was like 4.35, or and I'm sitting up on this concrete escarpment, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying. And uh, suddenly, I'm telling you, it was a supernatural thing. I, I saw... In my spirit, God just opened up a picture window for me, and I saw these friends of mine in America. I saw them in the spirit. I saw them praying for me. I saw these people in California. I mean, I felt them praying. I actually felt them praying. And I was happy about it, but then the Lord said, I want you to get rid of your pride. And I said, what are you talking about? I didn't even know. I'm just, you're showing me a picture of people praying for me, and I'm not thinking I'm in pride. But he said, I want you to train you, he said, to do something that few people do. He said, I want you to receive their prayers right now. I want you to, by your faith, release your faith to, re to receive the prayers that people who love you are praying. Now, I, that may sound so corny, and you may say, well, where does it fit here? It's just that sometimes the revelation, do I mean, doesn't it? I believe in prayer, and when people, when I know that people who know how to pray really are praying for me, I'm strengthened. I'm just quickened. But that day really touched me, because all of a sudden I saw that God, a lot, that uh, thousands of people can be praying, but as individuals, you need to receive the prayers of those who are praying for you. All I know is something happened in my life that day. Something, a switch went off, and I felt a power, strength, and energy come into my life that I didn't feel before. Now, I made, aren't you, I know that you're thrilled. I actually drew these. 
But what I mean is, it's so simple, but I was just, when I was writing these notes out, I was just trying to get people to see something. I mean, I just put the classic picture of intercession, all depend upon each other. I mean, you've got God above. In the middle of the whole mess, you've got Moses with the rod of God, and you've got Aaron and her, and of course, the battle that's below. But again, I know it's so simplistic, but you've got to see this is the picture of all prayer, all real intercession. Every single member depends on each other. God does not do what he does without somebody in the middle. The guy in the battle cannot win what he's doing except somebody above him is helping. We all need each other. It's amazing because when you think about it later, because as we'll read through in Colin Dilitz's in, in just a moment, a couple of things, every other time Moses, in the use of this rod, Moses extends this rod out over situations. But this is the very first time God's people are going into a war. And Moses, God doesn't tell Moses to go and, and lead the people, walk in front of the people. I mean, there's a pattern that's set here. God doesn't tell him to do this. He doesn't stretch this rod, which is a sign, or is, a, is the authority that God gave him. He doesn't put it over the situation, over the battle. He raises it to God. And there's something you have to learn there. I mean, there's, a, there's the use of your faith that's vertical, but then there's the power, of, I mean, excuse me, that's horizontal. But then there's the revelation of the fact that you have to be in a vertical relationship with God for there to be anything happening on the horizontal. But I've got on the next few pages, there's all this long, long, and again, you don't have to, to read all of it, but there's a few parts of it. Like I said, this is Kyle and Delights' commentary on, uh, on this battle of Amalek. Oh, like I said, forgive me, I'm starting right in the middle like you, you should read the whole thing, but I want you to take time to read this later. It says, whereas he had performed Moses... Whereas he had performed all the miracles, I'm reading the part that's underlined, whereas he had performed all the miracles in Egypt and on the journey by stretching out his staff, on this occasion, he directed his servant Joshua to choose men for the war and to fight the battle with the sword. He himself went with Aaron and Hur to the summit of a hill to hold up the staff of God in his hands that he might procure success to the warriors through the spiritual weapons of prayer. Now, I want you to come down to the last paragraph on that page. I'm just looking up. I'm going to read the last two sentences of the prior paragraph. Of this. Moses went to the top of the hill that he might see the battle from thence. He took Aaron and her with him, not as adjutants to convey his orders to Joshua and the army engaged, but to support him in his own part in connection with the conflict. The last paragraph. This was to hold up his hand with the staff of God in it. To understand the meaning of this sign, it must be borne in mind that although verse 11 merely speaks of the raising and dropping of the hand in the singular, Yet according to verse 12, both hands were supported by Aaron and Hur, who stood one on either side so that Moses did not hold up his hands alternately, but he grasped the staff with both his hands and held it up with the two. The lifting up of the hands has been regarded almost with unvarying unanimity by Targamus, Rabbins, Fathers, Reformers, and nearly all the more modern commentators as the sign or attitude of prayer. Then he goes on and refers to somebody that says it's not what it means, but then he just proves that. The lifting up of the staff secured to the warriors, the lifting up of the staff secured to the warriors below, in other words, the strength needed to obtain the victory from the fact that by means of the staff, Moses brought down this strength from above, i.e. the almighty God in heaven. Not indeed by a merely spiritless and unthinking elevation of the staff, but by the power of his prayer, which was embodied in the lifting up of his hands with the staff. 
and was so far strengthened thereby that God had chosen and already employed this staff as a medium of the saving manifestation of his almighty power. There's no other way in which we can explain the effect produced upon the battle by the raising and dropping of the staff in his hands. As long as Moses held up the staff, he drew down from God victorious powers for the Israelites by means of his prayer. But when he let it fall through the exhaustion of the strength of his hands, he ceased to draw down the power of God, and Amalek gained the upper hand. The staff, therefore, as it was stretched out on high, was not assigned to the Israelites that were fighting, for it is by no means certain, though possible, that they could see it in the heat of the battle. But, but it was assigned to Jehovah, carrying up, as it were, to God the wishes and prayers of Moses, and bringing down from God victorious powers for Israel. If the intention had been to hold it up before the Israelites as a banner of victory, Moses would not have withdrawn to a hill apart from the field of battle, but would either have carried it himself in front of the army or have given it to Joshua as a commander to be borne by him in front of the combatants, or else he would have entrusted at least to Aaron, who had performed the miracles in Egypt, that he might carry it at their head. The pure reason why Moses did not do this but withdrew from the field of battle to lift up the staff of God upon the summit of a hill and to secure the victory by so doing, by so doing is to be found in the important character of the battle itself. Now, I want to, now, these last two paragraphs, we'll read all of those. This is, like I said, I want you to see this part about Amalek. As the heathen world was now commencing its conflict with the people of God in the person of the Amalekites and the prototype of the heathen world with its hostility to God was opposing the nation of the Lord that had been redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. I just want, and it's a super long sentence, but you see, every commentator will tell you that, that the Amalekites are the prototype. They're the first type of all the heathen nations. They're a type, therefore, Satan. It'll say that in another place. But they're a type. And so I just want you to really have that in your thinking. Amalek always... I mean, another, in First Samuel, another place, Amalek always attacked from behind. He always attacked when people were weary and faint. He's a type of Satan. You need to hear that. I mean, it's just something you need to hear because you're going to, whether you're in the position of intercessor or you're in the position of praying for others, you need to warn them about some things. Let me just start the next to the last paragraph again. As the heathen world was now commencing its conflict with the people of God in the persons of the Amalekites, and the prototype of the heathen world with its hostility to God was opposing the nation of the Lord that had been redeemed from the bondage of Egypt and was on its way to Canaan to contest its entrance into the promised inheritance. So the battle which Israel fought with this foe possessed a typical significance in relation to all the future history of Israel. It could not conquer by the sword alone. I just... You need to take time and read this. I know that you know this, but you don't know this. Just like I don't know it. This is the prototype of all warfare against the people of God. Do you hear that? And the very thing that God's trying to do, the thing God leads Moses to do is this. He does not take that rod out in front of them. He, he takes it on a hill. The battle below is determined by the continuance above. Okay? So the battle which Israel fought with this foe possessed a typical significance in relation to all the future history of Israel. It could not conquer by the sword alone, but could only gain the victory by the power of God, coming down from on high and obtained through prayer and those means of grace with which it had been entrusted. The means now possessed by Moses were the staff, which was, as it were, a channel through which the powers of omnipotence were conducted to him. 
In most cases, he used it under the direction of God. But God had not promised him miraculous help for the conflict with the Amalekites. And for this reason, he lifted up his hands with the staff in prayer to God, that he might thereby secure the assistance of Jehovah for his struggling people. Again, and you have to read and think, every other occasion, like with the plagues and what have you, God or Moses used this staff at the command of the Lord. This is the first time that at least we read, Moses doesn't do this by the command of the Lord. So Moses takes this rod. Remember when we talked, you've got other commentaries on the rod earlier on in the notes. Rod is always a type of authority. It's a type of rule. And it's symbolic to us today of the authority that we have in our possession. What God has given you. What you have that God's anointed. You can look at it many different ways. One of the best ways to look at it is just this. And today, parlance, when you go into prayer, we're to take the word of God, the rhema, which God has given us. The rhema that God gives you is the authority that you walk in. Do you hear me? This, and, isn't there, and again, see, there's just so much difference than having a logos that Jesus Christ himself took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And that having been breathed by the Spirit of God into your soul and written upon the tablet of your heart where all of a sudden it's not a scripture you're quoting. It's like I said before, it's a life that you're breathing because you've gone to the cross with him. Jesus Christ himself took my infirmities and it's alive. It's a rhema in this situation. You know what I mean? My God delivers me out of all my destructions. And it's not coming because you're like, you know, you all, we, we all start, like I said, we all start like this. Okay, it's healing that I need. Let's see. I'm gonna, that's how, how we all started. You look up every scripture on healing. Finances, you look up every scripture on finance. I don't care what it is. You look up every scripture. That's how it starts. You start by doing some homework. You start by finding out what the will of God is. But then you take that seed and you plant it in your heart and you watch over it until it blooms and produces. And there's a, there's a full ear, you know, coming up in that stock that you get to eat from because it's grown up in the soul of your heart and something that's alive to you, that's been nurtured by you, been alive in the soil of your human spirit, your heart for such a time that the thing has grown up and has become part of you. It's not a teaching, like I said, that you've embraced. It's a truth that you now possess. There's a difference. There's just a difference. So here is the first time where Moses, every other time this rod was instructed, he was instructed by God where to do it. But this time on his own volition, he understands this is my authority. But the battle's down there. God said they're going to go to war. Moses like I said, here he has this revelation, this understanding. He's got to get up to the mountain and he's got to lift this thing before God. This is the authority that you've given me. This is what you've given me. And this is, what's going to, this is what has always delivered your people. And so I'm going to put this up. I'm basically putting you in remembrance of the authority that you've given us. You've called me to deliver your people Israel. I mean, you need to read between the lines. What we do today in intercession is we put God in remembrance don't we? God told us to rehearse the word back unto him. That's what the word confession is, homo legal, to speak the same thing as. All these things, Old Testament, New Testament. But again, he raises us up. And again, you know, God help us keep it simple. Listen, if you haven't discovered that yet, you ain't been at it very long. So while you're learning to press past your own flesh, there'll be other people who have already learned to press past their flesh that are already praying, hopefully. All I know is this, the reason schools like this are, are coming up all over the world is because God is, as it were, licensing tens and hundreds and thousands of others all over the world to do this for themselves. 
so that they get to the point where, you know, they've learned how to get past the flesh quick. It's like riding a bike. At first, remember, like I always say, you get on a bike, you fall 37 times when you're a kid. But after a while, you learn, you just jump on a bike and you start riding. You don't even think about balance. You just do it because you've done it. And that's how it becomes, that how it, it, can, it, it, it gets better and better and better in prayer. I'm not trying to say there's never a battle because you still have to keep your balance, but I'm saying after a while you can, you can kick in there and make connection a lot quicker than you used to do is all I'm trying to say. But there again is why I always say prayer above all things is a private experience. Okay, and the last pa- uh, paragraph. At length he became exhausted. And with the falling of his hands and the staff he held, the flow of divine power ceased so that it was necessary to support his arms, that they might be kept firmly directed upwards. The Hebrew word imunah means firmness. Until the enemy was entirely subdued. And from this Israel was to learn the lesson that in all its conflicts with the ungodly powers of the world, strength for victory could only be procured through the incessant lifting up of its hands in prayer. Again, that is so simple. Like I said, it's like I don't even want to say it. But man, God, help us to see it. We're supposed, this is why they had the hour of prayer. This is why they had all these stations of prayer. Because it was a thing, like I said before, remember, anything can become religified. It's not a word, but I make it into a word. You hear what I'm trying to say? Your prayer meetings, this is why you've got to do whatever it takes to keep it vibrant and alive to you, but you need to do it. You need to have a time of prayer. A time, that is your time. Like Francis Frangipan says, you know, he said when Larry Lee started all this stuff out, the highways were clogged in America for years, you know, at, uh, at five o'clock in the morning, people going to church for early morning prayer. He said, that's fine, but he said after a while it began to dwindle because he said after a while, he said instead of having churches full of people fire on fire for prayer, he said you had churches full of very weary, tired people. Because I love the same thing that he said. He said, Larry heard from God, but you heard from Larry. And so Francis goes on. He made me laugh. Francis went on to say, he said, so that's why for me, he said, the hour of prayer for me is about three in the afternoon. See, it's like this, me and Julie. Julie, Julie's up at five o'clock normally every morning or sometime early this morning. She's up about 4.45, 4.30, whatever. That's just when she wakes up. You know what I mean? She wakes up and I go, good morning. (laughs) And Julie goes to upstairs and she gets it alone. She's got her Bible and she does her thing for a couple of, I mean, she's, you know, and I wake up about 7.30 or something like that. And Julie's already been out there reading for a couple of hours and I walk in and she goes, good morning. And I'm going, oh. <laughs> But with me, it's about three in the afternoon. I mean, that's when I've done whatever. And I mean, but you know, God's not, you know, going to freak out. Just have it. Just don't let it be stolen from you. Amen. The principle of displacement. Exodus 23, like I said, all I'm going to do is introduce it. In Exodus 23, I'm going to read from the outline, page 31. In Exodus 23, as Moses continues to give the ordinances to Israel from God's command, God's promise is to send his angel. And anytime angel is not capitalized there, it speaks almost every time of quote unquote what we call the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. It's, this, it's Jesus Christ manifested in the old covenant. When it's the, anytime you see angel of the Lord, all Bible expositors agree. God's promise is to send his angel, the incarnate Jesus Christ before them. As they listen to and obey him, he said he will be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversaries. He promises to throw confusion into their enemy's camp 
even before they arrive. Dear God, please take this as a promise of God that you, when you begin to pray for a situation, uh, utilize. You need to implement this. You need to put this out there because this is the promise of God. That is, we walk in obedience to him. You can expect this. You need to have your expectancy out there. Exodus 23, verse 27 and 28, that's on the outline. He said, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people to whom you shall come. And I will make all your foes turn from you in flight. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. Hallelujah. Now I put down here in point two, the promise is contingent upon what? And again, if you read back up there and you start from Exodus 23, verse 20, he said again, I'll just read, the, let me read from the scriptures. Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep and guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Give heed to him, listen to and obey his voice. Be not rebellious before him or provoke him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you will indeed listen to and obey his voice and all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Hallelujah. And an adversary to your adversaries. And my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I reject them and blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods or serve them or do after their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break down their pillars and images. You shall serve the Lord your God. He shall bless your bread and water, and I will take sickness from your midst. None shall lose her young by miscarriage or be barren in your land, I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people to whom you shall come. And I will make all your foes turn from you in flight. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. And then he goes into this next part, which will start at the next hour about actual displacement, where he says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. And there's great wisdom in this that we'll get to in the next hour. But just right now, as we finish this session, let me just, uh, let me just finish it by saying this again. Uh, over and over again, I try to communicate that whatever we have, we have by faith. Remember, the principle is whatever God's grace has made available, faith must obtain. Remember? You hear me say it till you go nuts. Everybody outside this church is potentially saved because the grace of God that's paid for the redemption has already been made available. But that doesn't mean everybody will get saved, though it's God's will, according to First Timothy, that all men be saved. Yet all men will not be saved because people won't move towards that grace and through faith appropriate to themselves what is available. So the issue is never what's available. The issue is everything God's made available, you have to move towards it and through faith appropriate it to yourself. We have to hear that. We really do. So I'm just saying when you find scriptures like this, you see, you can either say, eh, it's Old Testament, eh, that's what, or you can say, Father, I'm going into a thing here. And in Jesus' name, I'm releasing my faith on purpose for you to throw confusion into the enemy's camp. For you to go before me, that you'll deal with a thousand things before I even get there. In Jesus' name, because I'm going in your name. I have checked my own life out. For all intents and purposes, I know of no idolatry that's in my life right now. It's what he says in verse 23, 22 and 23, where he says about it, just rid yourself from the other stuff when you get there. I, I, you know, I give you my word about this. I'm ridding myself from all these things. And I trust you in Jesus' name. 
to bring confusion into the enemy's camp. And some of you have heard me pray like that for a long time. I mean, God showed me this many, many years ago. I have watched things happen that are mind-blowing, how God will go before us and do things well in advance of us ever getting there. But some people go in with huge faith for the battle. You hear what I'm trying to say? They go in with negative faith. They go in with, I mean, they've got concrete ballasts, shiploads full of faith about how horrible it's going to be. And they don't realize it, but they're actually empowering that stuff and making it harder than it needs to be. So let's put our faith where we're supposed to in the will of God and say, Father, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? Isn't he? Well, if he wanted to do this then, you're going to tell me he doesn't want to do it now? No, he's the same. He'll do it. Father, we thank you for this much in the name of Jesus Christ, and we trust that you're helping us now. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.